1: This will certainly have an adult theme and might well contain strong scenes of sex or violence, which could be quite graphic. It may also contain some very explicit language, which will frequently mean sexual swear words.
2: What do
0: you like listening to? Um, Chart music.
3: (laughs) Chart music.
1: Smash Hits March the 7th to the 20th 1990 Page 20 Lyric Sheet 1990's Time for the Guru By Guru Josh 1990's Time for the Guru Ah 1990's Time for the Guru Uh 1990's Time for the Guru Uh, uh Ooh, ah, uh, 1990s. Time for the guru, Uh, ah, uh, ah. Uh. Well, I don't know about that, pop crazy youngsters, but what I do know is that it's time for chart music number 66, part three. And Sarah B, Taylor Parks, and my good self, Al Needham, are not in the mood to fanny about. Forward. <laughs> Do you know something? That's going to be a top five hit. What a great performance. I think they enjoyed it as much as everybody else. That's Candy Flip, Strawberry Fields Forever. Here's another record of the week. The B-52s have a charted
0: at last. Love Shack.
1: Mayo back on the balcony behind a massive Radio 1 logo and in the middle of a line of much older members of the audience, appears so enraptured by the flared four that he predicts a top five placing for them before pivoting to one of his former records of the week, Love Shack by the B-52s. Formed in Athens, Georgia in 1976, the B-52s were signed to the local label DB Records in 1978 and when their debut single, Rock Lobster sold 20,000 copies in the Georgia area and they were invited to play at CBGB's and Max's Kansas City in New York they were picked up by Warner Brothers in the US and Ireland in the UK and whisked over to Island Studios in the Bahamas to record their first first self-titled LP. They made the first dent on the UK charts in 1979, when a re-recorded version of Rock Lobster spent two weeks at number 37 in August of that year, while the LP got to number 22 in the same month. Although they weren't as successful in the American charts, their influence was such that when John Lennon was interviewed by Andy Peebles the day before he died, he said that hearing Rock Lobster was the spark for getting him back into the studio and recording Double Fantasy. Although they were an intermittent fixture on the UK LP chart throughout the early 80s, diminishing returns set in singles-wise. And when guitarist Ricky Wilson died in October of 1985 after the band had recorded their fourth LP, the band shut up shop and refused to tour. However... When Ireland re-released Rock Lobster and their second single, Planet Clear, as a double-A side in May of 1986, it rocketed up to number 12, which, combined with a guest appearance as hosts of a Peter fundraiser in Washington, where they were cheered to the rafters, convinced them to get their thumbs out their arses and start again. This single... The follow-up to Channel Z, which failed to chart in America and hasn't been released here yet, is the second cut from their comeback LP, Cosmic Thing, which was released last June and was co-produced by Don Woz on the advice of the record label and Niall Rogers on the advice of Kate Pearson's Mam Psychic. It's based on the cabin where the band recorded Rock Lobster and it's already been and gone in America, getting to number three last November. It entered the charts at number 33 at the beginning of the month, then soared 19 places to number 14, and this week it's jumped eight places to number six, and here is the officially allotted two minutes of video. Hmm amazingly chaps this is the third cut release from the LP in America which is fucking mental because if there was ever a nailed on hit in the spring of 1990 it's this bastard right here yeah
3: don't you think I uh, I I always felt a bit weird that I don't really like this much
2: I fall in and out with it myself because like Love Shack by the B-52s We all have to get right with the fact that we're going to be hearing this off and on for the rest of our lives.
1: Oh, God, yeah.
2: Hopefully it won't be the last thing you hear before you depart this mortal (laughs) coil. I'm not sure that would be, you know, sort of drifting through the hospital. So, yeah, I fall in love with it. Sometimes I want to slap it in the face because it's so fucking cheery and, you know, Mm. and other times I think, no, no, come on, this is a great record and I just want to. Smack it on its ass in a friendly hijinks sort of way. Mm. It's very zesty, isn't it? It's not. It's yes. not quite zany, but it's very zesty. Yes, and it's it's filled with colour and texture and made to delight and amuse. That's yeah. the point of this.
1: I mean, let's not fanny about it. This is by a country mile the best tune on this episode so far. Yeah, 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 yeah. by by a Georgia mile. And to hear it in this context will be like opening a window in a festival toilet and letting the sun in but yeah you're right age and repetition has worn it somewhat. I mean,
2: they are a good fun band. They've been going for a mm. long time. They do have other songs. Yeah,
1: they're an acceptable doolies aren't they? The B-52s. <laughs> um,
2: yeah, I guess so. I mean, the thing is, I kind of have to like them because I live with a man who will break into rock lobster at the drop of a hat. Or right. indeed, the drop of a matching towel. Mm. You can't say narwhal in this house without <laughs> all hell breaking loose. <laughs> but you have to be in the right mood. I don't think. There are some yeah. Tunes where it's like You can't be sad While this is on Mm. I wouldn't file this Among them I think If you're sad This is gonna just Piss you off more Oh god yeah But it really creates a world in, in the kind of three minutes. Like, we've spoken before, haven't we, on this podcast about what parties we'd go to and yeah. which nights out in pop. Yes. I would go. I would go to the Love Shack. I don't know Oh, about, God, yeah. You would. It's like a sort of day-glow speakeasy just secreted in the middle of the lush forests of Georgia. Yeah, It's one of the great mythic party places of pop, and they've set it out right. Yeah. The guaranteed no fools. Yeah, that's good. Semi-naked people. Yeah. The jukebox isn't free, but I maintain that's good because people will care about what they're putting on if they have to pay for it yeah hugging mm. kissing check dancing mm. and loving
1: oh, double check
2: all of these things the music and the vibes are great the drinks are terrifying it's a lawless health and safety nightmare <laughs> it's it's great i love that there's such a great mental image um, that they've conjured up that the whole shack shimmies when everybody's grooving around mm. and around and around and around Yeah, Like, the glittery dust falling from the ceiling into your beehive.
1: I mean, the instant reaction I always have to this, it's always, oh, it's this again, so they'll be playing Groovies in the Heart next, and that'll be the early (laughs) 90s taken care of, and possibly Step On.
3: Yeah, whenever you hear this record, you know you will find ordinary people dancing. Yes. Which is, you know, on the whole, a good thing. I just don't appreciate how... If you say that you don't really care for this record or group, people respond as though you said you don't like happiness. Mm. You know what I mean? I can see that you would probably have to be weirdly over sour or have a very specific bee in a very specific bonnet to actively hate them. Or this, mm. and you know, people have got great memories of dancing to this at Donna's hen night or whatever, you know, which is all great and totally valid. It's just that uh, for me, the B fifty two, I don't know, they sort of exist in the in the mysterious unlit gap between me and happiness, mm. you know, and they don't run a ferry service. <laughs> it's a representation of a certain kind of happiness or at least camp amusement Mm. which just isn't necessarily contagious and it probably should be because it's you know sort of smart but undemanding and there's a reasonable arrangement of simple ideas all of which are potentially appealing but it just doesn't connect with me and I think because I'm never in quite the right state of relaxation and acceptance but I mean I know there's a queue of reasonable people who love this record stretching from Barbary to here and Mm. I don't say that I know any better than any of them Yeah, yeah
2: you can sort of grudgingly appreciate the craft can't you even if you can't get with the mood that's been very forcefully created in this very very American way yeah. I mean I I do get it. This could not have been made by British people. I I would Oh
1: god, can posit. you imagine?
2: I mean when British people try to do this, you get bomb ballerina, don't you? Yeah. That's yeah. what you get. It just <laughs> doesn't work. And there is often, as I've remarked upon before, this sort of uncomfortable contrast on top of the pops between the super snappy, sexy, whizzy, cool kid Americans and mm. the kind of slumpy, slouchy sloppy blundery brits Mm. you know that doesn't doesn't mean this is the only way to to do this it is quite an obnoxious record but you know that there are americans in
1: control you know (laughs) It's very Roy Walker, isn't it, the video? Instead of say what you see, it's film what you hear. Yay. So there's a shack and it's filmed with people getting together and people are getting to it via a highway and a car as big as a whale, but there's no need to bring your jukebox money because there's a band on tonight. Yeah. And it's the B-52s, fancy that.
2: The video is very, very literal, but it goes with it very well. Mm. They painted a picture with words, they didn't necessarily need to do it in the video, but, but they did and it works really well. Um, the mm. one thing that I noticed is that stood out in this little clip um, the bartender is shaking a cocktail shaker so laconically like that's not how you do it put your back into it (laughs) i can only assume that the contents are so volatile that he has to baby it yeah you've got to be careful you go to the love shack you drink things that no man of woman born should drink (laughs) and you wake up three days later half out of a creek wearing only another man's pants (laughs) it's it's dicey
3: it's probably one of those 1950s cocktails that are now illegal. They've got lead in it.
2: <laughs> it's fine that it's literal, but there are some preposterous theories kicking about. about how how oh, it's, really? not, it's not literal. It's actually about getting knocked up in a brothel and oh. uh the Chrysler is a, somebody's dick. No. Obviously, there are loads of vehicles in pop that are actually penises, but mm. in this case, I don't buy it. Sometimes a car is just a car. Yeah. Even if it is... As big as a whale.
1: <laughs> and I didn't see any stars or bananas over that car in the video, so... Uh, hell no. I think the really disturbing lyric in Love Shack is glitter on the highway. Because it sounds like a fucking breakout at HM Prison, the Verne <laughs>
3: <laughs> Well, there's nothing good that ends with glitter on the highway.
1: Oh, yeah, or glitter on the mattress.
2: <sighs> uh, I mean, yeah, okay, if you stretch, you can see that as you know something other than actual glitter but
1: uh. oh what, not spunk what are you going on no <laughs> oh imagine ejaculating glitter oh, oh
2: well you never get you never get rid of it that's the thing no
1: <laughs> and again it's another example of the uk falling behind america because you know this has been out fucking ages in america we're even behind australia on this one it was their christmas number one last year don't you know
3: uh, yeah. Well, it might just be that it's taken a bit of time for this aesthetic to make any sense in Britain, mm. right? Because I think a couple of years ago, I'm not sure anybody would really have got it, you know, because it's very American. It's like a sort of cutesy cramps, in it? It's like a sort of neo-Americana. The twinges. But this is it like all reluctant critics the problem I have is when I don't really like something I usually know exactly why and then I can't stop thinking about that which makes it even harder to relax in its presence and just go along with it which might sometimes be a better course of action but... This is it, the B-52s just hit me in the same way as those things to which they are aesthetically similar, right? Like John Waters films or Mm. Fridge Magnets with a picture of a 1950s American housewife, you know, and a caption about drinking gin and all that. They just pass through without pinging any symbols, you know. I think because they feel like the work of people who have some brains and talent in a shape that, doesn't necessarily fit into the culture of their time but for whatever reason they don't have the gumption or the genius to create their own culture or their own space within a hostile culture so it's just this kind of atomic age kitsch you know which wants to make peace with its own irrelevance and almost revel in it i might be overthinking this but you know what else can I do?
2: Taylor, I, I feel like there's a a struggle going on here that mm. you don't need to have. Like there's no shame in being a person who doesn't like Love Shack by the B52s even if, yeah. you know, the only person or one of a very few. It's fine. It's all right. You don't have to.
3: It doesn't cause me any mental strife in my in my personal life. You know, <laughs> it's just a just a professional consideration. Yeah. I, don't know. I think it's just a a character thing. Like I don't Really want to dance to this record, same as I don't really want to apply to be on a game show. You know what I mean? Actually, I did apply to be on a game show. I applied really? to be on uh, SAS Who Dares Win, <laughs> but they, they turned me down. They said I was too hard. <laughs> it wouldn't be fair.
1: I'm the same as you, Taylor. If it comes on, it's like, oh, this. Yeah. And that's the wrong reaction to have to any single.
3: Yeah, yeah. You
1: know what I mean? And the thing that annoyed me about it at the time is it's one of the most prominent singles about being in a club that's a million times better than the sticky, flawed, stale beer, reeking provincial shithole that I was currently in. Right. You know, I'd just be there lumbering about to it and thinking, oh, God, I wish I was there instead of it. here. Yeah. It's like the polar opposite to nightclub or Friday night and Saturday morning, isn't it?
3: Yeah. But if somebody said to, me hey come with me it's we're going deep into the forest in georgia to a shack it's going to be great Mm -hmm. i'd be thinking yeah give me give me deliverance
1: yes (laughs) (laughs) so the following week love shack moved up four places to number two and camped out there for three weeks held off the summit of mount pop by this week's number one and the power by snap the follow-up Rome got to number 17 in June and then their chart appeal became more selective. But they'd have one last hurrah in 1994 when they temporarily renamed themselves the BC-52s and took their cover of the Flintstones theme tune to number 43 for three weeks in July of that year. Yeah. Oh man, why did they bother remaking the Flintstones, stupid Americans? Still going, just about. Last month they announced their farewell tour, supported by Nobed Cunt and whatever remains of the Sunshine Band, so uh. good on them.
2: Yeah, that's great, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, well, Kate Pearson, who, I mean, I still don't believe she's real, I, I'm sure mm. she's a Tim Burton character, you know. Yeah. She was about my age in, in the Love Shack video and she looks about, you know, she looks about 20, so... She looks um, amazing sure she... in this video. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, she is truly ageless, I think. But, I mean, she, for years, has also had... um, I don't think you can call it a side hustle. It's probably her main hustle, Mm. which is to have rented cabins. Right. She had a whole compound in the Catskills just outside Woodstock, which she's now sold. Really? But she still has several of those, like, cabins and Airstream trailers and stuff for for holiday rents.
1: The Airbnb 52s.
2: (laughs) Indeed. Um, And they look just... you will. the, The website for them is so beautiful. It's all so kind of... Like I said about, you know, you, when, when you throw a party and when you have a, a compound of, of, of kitschy cabins, you just the, the the intent filters through right to the last detail, you know, mm. and they look exactly like you expect in the best way. Um my, yeah. my pal and uh, fellow ex-maker guy, um, Stevie Chick, said that he stayed in one. And oh. so it was brilliant. There's a Betamax machine and, like, a library of 80s comedies and slasher movies. It's just oh, that's
1: lovely. Nice. Yeah. Oh, and did you notice the black woman in the white outfit? Yes. Do you know who that is? No. no. It's the first appearance on British TV of a 28-year-old pole dancer from a club in Atlanta called RuPaul Charles. Oh. Yeah. Gang. Yeah, if your dad fancied her, go and see him now and <laughs> tell him. song Okay, here come the breakers this week. We have the wets at number thirty one, we have fish at number thirty and kicking it all off at twenty-nine. This is big fun to start the breakers this week. mayo still on the balcony spoilers this week's breaker section before pitching us into handful of promises by big fun We last covered Human Sop in chart music number 30 when they danced like they were trying to get dog shit off their trainers in an attempt to promote Can't Shake the Feeling, which got to number 8 in December of 1989. This is the follow-up and will be the third cut from their debut LP A Pocket Full of Dreams, which is due out at the end of next month. It came out last week and it's a new entry this week at number 29 and here's a chance to see the video and all dear chaps it appears that by March of 1990 the hit factory is in recession Kyler doing films and trying to move away from her Charlene image Jason diminishing returns are setting in, no more Mel and Kim, Rick Astley's moved to RCA and even Sunita's fucked off. All that's left at the moment for Stock Aikian and Waterman is Sonya and these twats. <sighs> hmm.
2: Some boys in a baggy, shapeless faded bag isn't it very much so they are quite hearty lads yes they're quite ruddy cheeks they look like volunteer firemen <laughs> but it is like a strange parody of a boy band
1: video yes it,
2: it's it's like a sketch isn't it a little bit and yeah. it's like what anyone is doing behind or in front of the camera is beyond me yeah
1: well they are the pioneers of what we see as boy bands nowadays aren't they a group of lads who don't play instruments and do a bit of a dance and look at us girls you fancy us
2: yeah i mean, it's such there's such alchemy behind boy bands and when it it it, it mm. works or it doesn't you know and, yes. and obviously a lot of like craft and hard work goes into it as well and this is hard thankless work mm. it's a bit like i don't know it's a bit like being a, a server in an american restaurant or something yes where you have to bid yes. everyone have a nice day and smile whether you feel like it or not
1: you have to feel sorry for the poor sos, Not just because of who they are and what they're not capable of. And not just because they're the vanguard of Arsene, Stock Aiken and Waterman and they've just landed a disappointing chart position. But, you know, you have to remember, this is an all-gay boy band who are still being forced to keep it on the down low by Pete Waterman. No. And they're on the cusp of an era where every single boy band that's going to come down the pike is going to be encouraged to do a gay. <laughs> and they can't. They're not allowed they've just got to stand there togged out in their young person's rail card advert outfits
2: yeah they've been dressed by some straights haven't Mm. they it ain't right
1: and what makes it even worse is the location they've put them in which is an empty warehouse with a sprinkler system and a steam machine which is you know if you were going to build a trap to attract and snare homoerotic acting males that's what you'd make (laughs) if take that were in this video a year later you know their shirts are coming right off and there's going to be some horseplay oh yeah possibly with with some jelly, but because Big Fun aren't allowed to express themselves, all they can do is throw some unconvincing shapes and interact with some models who are pretending to be their girlfriends. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, you're not going to see members of Big Fun taking their pants off and swapping them and putting them on again in a video, are you?
2: To us it is a warehouse, but to them it's just a huge closet. No.
1: <laughs> As people of the future, we know what Big Fun wants a handful of, and it's not promises. <laughs> But back in the day, when Big Fun were a concern on the playground, there, there would have been no inkling that, you know, about what they like to get up to.
2: Oh, no, absolutely not. I mean, obviously, everybody knows that no 11-year-old boy has ever known he was gay. That only happens when you turn 16, like, literally, on your birthday, you wake up. and That's the first thing that occurs to you, hmm, maybe I like guys.
3: Yeah, because it is a decision, isn't it? Well, it depends how much homosexual propaganda you've come into contact with. In your teenage year. yeah Oh, yeah,
2: yeah, yeah. I mean,
3: despite the fact that they must have been feeling pretty bad at this point, they must have watched this, yeah. this episode of Top of the Pops, and by the time it rolled round to their little clip, it'd be like, Jesus, you know what we are – Old cunts on the block. <laughs>
1: <laughs> It'd be like when you do some talking head shit for some documentary and you just peel off pearler after pearler. You just think, well, there's, there's no way they can't use that. And then it comes on and you've got 10 seconds talking about something that you, you did as a fucking aside that was shit. And you just yeah. think, oh, that's who I am, am I? <laughs> I'm just the big fun of this documentary, Amma.
3: Yeah, well, I don't know. I mean, what is left to say about big fun? Oh, plenty, Taylor.
1: (laughs) Because Big Fun are the whipping boys of pop at the moment. They encapsulate everything that needs to be gotten rid of from the 80s and you know they're the yardstick that all these new bands that are coming along are are railing against to that end i direct the pop craze youngsters to an interview conducted by stephen wells in the enemy a month ago with birdland Uh whose latest single sleep with me has just entered the charts at number 32 which has encouraged them to go about thinking the summit when asked if being in magazines like The Face and On Top of the Pops compromises selling out, Lee Vincent says, no, 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 we're going to be there rather than big fun with their con here hair, right, yeah. And when Swell's asks them if they really Hate Big Fun Lee replies Yeah it makes you want To puke the whole thing About these bands is that they're in it For money <laughs> money and Girlfriends and wearing designer Things and being in the face right Number one girlfriends <laughs> Don't think yeah. so number two This interview was conducted well Birdland were actually in a studio Doing a fucking photo shoot for the Face <laughs> and then Swell's asked Robert Vinson if he would chin Big Fun if he met them (laughs) I wouldn't go anywhere they go But then Swells asks, what about if you met them in the top of the pop studio and they came up to you and said, hi I think you guys are really great and we really like the single. Robert comes back with, I just say yeah, it is, isn't it? I think your record's crap. Why don't you make a record like that? Actually play something. Can you do that, you wankers?
2: Oh yeah, real tough guys there. Wow, what an extremely hard target. That's so edgy. Ooh, you hate the boy bands, do you? Gosh, you must be amazing. You're such a free thinker. Your music must be the most brilliant music if you hate the boy bands. Please tell me more.
1: At some point, we'll get to Birdland's whole 30 seconds
3: on top of the pops. Wow. Can't wait. Yeah, a mate of mine had a bootleg video of something once, can't remember what it was, and at the end, it finished, and then, you know, it went, and then you saw what had been on the tape beforehand mm. underneath and it was a birdland gig oh um, no and it was the climax of this birdland gig which was just a load of feedback and noise and the bloke out of birdland was uh, on his knees on the stage shouting into the microphone and he was going baby you could drive my car baby you can drive my car <laughs> baby you can drive my car and he said it about 10 times and there's a pause and then he went my fucking car <laughs> <laughs> And so for about the next uh, three years, on the rare occasions that uh, you saw a mention of Birdland in the press (laughs) or on TV, everyone would just start shouting,
2: my fucking car! (laughs) You wouldn't get away with that now either, would you?
1: Because, like, that's... Hate speech.
2: (sighs) Well, it kind of... Yeah, but Wells
1: was clearly goading them into, you know, making threats and whatnot. But more importantly, Big Fun versus Birdland. I know where my money would be on. Yeah.
2: There was a, a, a new metal band whose name I now forget, who actually, mm. ca- did they call their album Kill All Boy Bands? And the tour was oh, like really? the Kill All Boy Bands tour. And I had to go and do a little backstage interview with them after a gig. And the guy was so fucking pleased with himself about his entire oh. concept. And it's just like, you know that... It's the chart, right? And if you deign to be in it, you, you can share it with some people. Sometimes they'll sell more than you, but that's okay. Yeah, you know, it's all right, mate. It's okay.
1: It's like when Peter and the Test Tube Babies did a song called Beat Up the Mods. <laughs> and this chorus was Beat Up the Mods, 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 Beat The Mods Up! <laughs> My fucking mods. (laughs) (laughs) So, the following week, Handful of Promises jumped eight places to number 21, but would get no further. In panic mode, Stock Aitken and Waterman teamed them up with Sonia in the summer with a view to recording a cover of You've Got a Friend for Childline. But for reasons unknown, they ended up recording a single with the same name written by Saw, and it got to number 14. In a last throw of the dice, they released their karaoke version of Eddie Holman's Hey There Lonely Girl in August of this year. And when that only got to number 62, they were dropped by Jive and Saw, reforming as Big Fun 2 in 1993 to put out a cover of the Johnson Brothers Stomp. But when that did nothing, they split up in 1994.
2: Just one, it's
3: a me, so I'll do one step to the side. Can you get it inside your head? I'm tired
1: Born in Dalkeith, Midlovian, in 1958, Derek Dick was a former petrol pump attendant and gardener who picked up the nickname Fish from a landlord who complained about the amount of time he spent in the bath. He relocated to Aylesbury in 1980, becoming the lead singer of Marillion a year later, and after a session on Tommy Vance's Friday Rock show, they were picked up by EMI in 1982 their debut single Market Square Heroes came out in October of that year getting to number 6 there but the follow up he knows you know got to number 35 sparking a run of 12 top 40 singles on the bounce peaking in the mid 80s with Kaylee getting to number 2 in June of 1985 and misplaced childhood entering the LP charts at number 1 in the same month by late 1987 however Marillion's ridiculously accept- touring schedules caused a row between fish and the band's manager who told the rest of the band to choose between the two when they opted for the manager he quit the band in july of 1988 took the songs he'd already written for their fifth lp and embarked upon a solo career This single, the follow-up to Big Wedge, which got to number 35 in January, is the third cut from his debut LP, Vigil in a Wilderness of Mirrors, which came out at the end of that month and featured a pickup band which featured a 23-piece orchestra, Hal Lindes of Dire Straits, Mark Brzezicki of Big Country and Carol Kenyon. Yes, the Temptation Woman with Heaven 17. It's entered the charts this week at number thirty and here's a snippet of the video which is dead merillionaire. <laughs> and the backroom boys are having a right good fuck about with their new graphics package, aren't they? They've uh, they've mashed the title of the song together to form a fish, would you believe, which swims across the screen before breaking up and falling into place. Really nice touch, but it makes you wonder what they'd have done for snivelling shits or anal cunt. <laughs>
3: I didn't notice that. I think probably because I have my fingers over my eyes when this came
1: <laughs> Now, as all true pop crazy youngsters know, it is the law on chart music that we always have to point out that Taylor fucking loved Marillion back in the day. So, yeah, in 1990, Teller, you must have been as excited about Fisher's solo career as I was in 1983
3: about the style council, yeah? Uh, It's hard to believe, but by 1990, I'd kind of uh, lost interest. Well, by 1987, I'd kind of lost interest in Marillion. (laughs) It's hard to believe, though, listening to music of the calibre of Gentleman's Excuse Me. Mm. I mean, you'd look at him in this video that he could get drunk just inhaling his bo
1: the clip we see consists of fish sat in a ballroom with loads of people behind him having a bit of a slow dance emoting to the camera about a failed relationship we don't see him from the waist up in this clip thankfully but i'm suspecting he's wearing a kilt (laughs) don't you
3: <laughs> what? Because it's a formal occasion.
1: Yes.
2: <laughs> well, I mean, it is a kind of ballroom-themed video, so it might be a full ball gown.
1: Yes,
2: for all we know.
1: And he's essentially telling us that he don't want to dance, dance with you, baby, no more.
2: So yeah, they're kind of there. In so there's a ballroom inside, and then there's another bit of the video where they they are outside for some reason on like a cleared site. Mm. and they're all kind of clustered up dancing in a corner of it and there's like a grand piano but they're not even like in the rubble because the rubble has been cleared maybe Mm. they meant to film it in some rubble but then it's like oh no the builders have cleared it oh well let's do it anyway yeah
1: you know that's going to be a summer field or a gateway in six months time
2: yeah yeah or a cross rail station he does have that kind of lower league football manager look with this sort of Wispy mullet and his scraggy chin hair, and and his, his kind of Kinder Egg yolk head. But <laughs> he does he does have beautiful eyes, like a weimaraner. Right, I know there's a filter on everything, but those are lovely, kind eyes. So that's fine. Nothing else about your face matters if you've got lovely eyes. Well,
1: this is it. I've been looking at loads of interviews for research for this. He seems a really nice bloke. You know, you can imagine sitting down and having a pint with him and having a good chit-chat and getting on, you know, as long as you didn't tell him that you knew Taylor, of course. And the other (laughs) thing is, us lot, you know, the so-called experts, we've always seen Fischer shaking Gabriel 10 years at a time and and a bit ludicrous. But to the general public, is that bloke who pops up every now and again with the really nice, sad little love songs? And here's another example.
2: Well, I mean, that was my experience of, of Marillion, you know, when I was a kid. I always had a soft spot for Kayleigh which I was as a kid I found it really devastating there was just something about the whole tone of it that was just like oh it's really heartrending mm. it's a sort of mythic lament it's almost like yes. It's almost like Jim Steinman experimenting with a more straightforward, low-key kind of narrative song structure. Mm. I have to say, as well, in the context of 1990 especially, can you get it inside your head, I'm tired of dancing, is quite a beguiling little line. Yes. And it's delivered with some real feeling in this slightly wobbly voice. Yeah. And and it did make the hairs on my arms go up. I mean, the follicles don't lie. You know.
1: Yeah, particularly during an episode of Top of the Pulse where they're practically going, dance, 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 now! Yeah,
2: yeah, yeah, especially. Especially after big fun doing a kind of sad forced frog yeah. in the disused industrial prison of suppressed sexuality yeah. for their sore overlords
1: yeah fish was never going to be the fourth member of big fun was there? <laughs> Big fish. I
3: think Fish probably thought dancing was a bit shallow. Yeah,
1: the song's based mainly on his marriage, which had been falling to bits almost immediately after it occurred three years ago, and then he discovered that she was having an affair during the recording of this LP, and he had to record this in Abbey Road with an orchestra in the same room as him, in an extremely tight recording window, having all that on his mind. So you got a feel for the poor sod, but you know you can also draw comparisons with his marriage and subsequent divorce with marillion because he was marillion wasn't he to sorts who weren't that interested in
3: marillion yeah if you've got a band of like four or five i don't even know how many it was four or five blokes who look like they work in a guitar shop yeah And there's like a six foot six inch lunatic with his face (laughs) painted in front going yeah that's he tends to be the one who uh draws your attention
1: i mean doing songs about other people it's its a tricky thing isn't it because you know they can't answer back in song unless they're britney spears or justin tim blake i mean the only recourse mrs fish would have in this case would be to appear in an advert dressed as a mermaid and say fish thinks he's hung like a whale but his performance in bed gave me much to carp about <laughs> and I'll tell you all about it only in the sun <laughs> but it turned out reasonably alright in the end because she actually appears in this video as herself and they had a kid a year later and they stayed married for another 13 years so you know doing this song and video was a lot more helpful to them going to relate so you know if anyone out there is in a bad marriage at the moment go make a pop video with your partner no. anything else to say about this no <laughs> no so the following week a gentleman's excuse me dropped one place to number 31 and slid out of the charts the follow-up internal exile made it to number 37 in september of 1991 and a slow and prolonged series of diminishing returns set in across the rest of the 90s i'm taking two
3: steps back can you get
1: it inside your head Back river. Like We've covered Marty and the Mackens a couple of times on Chart Music, and this, their eighth single, is the follow-up to Broke Away, which got to number 19 in the last week of 1989. It's the third cut from their third LP, Holding Back the River, which got to number two in the LP chart of November of 1989. It entered the chart at number 34 last week, and this week it's moved up three places to number 31 hardly a breaker but top of the pops in a move to keep mam happy has lumped it in with the others so here's a flash of Marty Pello doing that smiley does at an enormo gig. Marty Pello he's essentially Les McEwen recalled by the manufacturers and repaired and modified and sent back out again isn't it? (laughs) You know the cockiness has become cheekiness the level of professionalism has been radically upgraded and it's fair to say that he's not going to run granny's over in a big car or shoot his fans in the face with an air rifle (laughs) (laughs) they've got it right haven't they with
3: Marte yeah and it it just feels like it would be genuinely impossible to stop him smiling Mm. but I think most people would take that as a challenge. <laughs> yeah. It is a shit-eating grin, isn't it?
1: So yeah, by this time, wait, 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 they've made a conscious decision to step away from their teenage fan base. You know, the minute that Bros encroached upon their patch, they took a move away, probably with relief, and concentrated on being musos. And in recent interviews, they're revelling in the fact that people, well, alright, women, of all ages are turning up to their gigs, but you know, there's going to be a short-term price to pay for that which is a period of rubbish chart placings and only getting 28 seconds on top of the pops by this point if you sat down and looked at this episode of top of the pops you'd see that band and go god they're on their arse then
3: yeah well it's hardly surprising when you hear the the deep soulful sound of Hold mm. Back the River Fuck yeah. you know? it's, like, it's got that 80s drum clatter on it and that's mm. like the only audible thing on the record, it might as well have just been that, because when you hear yeah. it that's the only thing that, that you notice just this mm. ksh, 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 ksh. Oh, it's a horrible horrible sound, yeah. the least rich and soulful sound you could ever imagine. Mm.
2: It does sound like they've taken a sort of big classic big band sound and put it in a uh, yes, for sort of easy <laughs> popping into the chart mm. I'm assuming that you've both seen some of the Sopranos mm. at some point Tony Soprano gets gifted a big mouth Billy Bass this sort of weird fishy gift yes. and it sings take me to the river in this horrible tinny voice and when it gets to the chorus it sort of turns and looks at him and it violently triggers the memory of how he killed his best friend and dumped him in the sea Spoilers, oh. And I was thinking, like, what water-related tune could a big mouth Billy Bass <laughs> sing to a New Jersey mob boss that would be more disturbing than that? And I think this could work. Yes. It's that kind of slow, <laughs> creeping dread masquerading as swing, isn't it? <laughs> Marty Pello it seems like an all-right sort of bloke. Yeah. I'm happy to see him doing okay in his life and still getting work.
3: Why are you glad to see that?
2: Because... You know, it's nice sometimes. I mean, I, I, I throw my casual hate around the place a, a lot, and sometimes I go, no, it's all right. It's nice when people aren't suicidally miserable sometimes you know. go in peace Marty Pello he's overcome lots of adversity in his life you know the addiction and the death of his brother and stuff mm. but I cannot delighted as I am to see that he's he's alright I, I can't in all honesty say I was happy to see him in the 40th anniversary of the musical version of Jeff Wayne's War of the Worlds no <laughs> god when did that the happen the worst thing well on the 40th anniversary of you know well we yeah, yeah. silly But di- he's been doing it for the last 10 years actually it's been you know it, it's say? a musical version has been doing you know obviously they had a pandemic break and then they came back like last year or whatever
1: good to see that the martians survived the pandemic though (laughs) when they usually keel over at the first sniffle so they must have been wearing masks and self-isolating and uh, you know complying obviously the martians didn't go to any bloody uh mccluskey gigs. <laughs>
2: <laughs> it's the worst thing ever made by humans i mean i'm i'm not a musical person anyway but you know with with some notable exceptions but fuck it, hell he's doing the sung thoughts of the journalist so right. basically what's going on in the head of the hologram of liam neeson as humanity faces extinction and actually not smiling during right. during that's bits.
1: not right and, and
2: look quite weird yeah yeah, you know, he still looks like marty Pello but like, but he doesn't smile so no so it, it is possible sometimes he doesn't Good go. but he's in a cream suit and like everything about it is worse than every other thing about it <laughs> like i happened upon it like one morning when i was feeling really crappy and i just kind of hate watched it oh. like i just decided to punish myself with a horrible work of bad popular art
0: but yeah,
1: they're very keen to put over how big and popular they are. You know, these kind of videos is, uh, look at us, aren't we brilliant? Loads of people like us. Maybe you should too. Come to one of our gigs, buy a t-shirt and a tour programme.
2: I don't think there's necessarily anything dirty about making a video like that. I think it's legit. It's a cheap way to do it, I suppose.
1: Save a few quid. So the following week, Hold Back The River dropped six places to number 37 and fell out of the chart. The follow-up, a double A side consisting of Stay With Me Heartache and a cover of The Beatles' I Feel Fine, not with a funky drummer beat on it, thank fuck, did slightly better, getting to number 30 in August. Yeah, it's their fault for fucking Candy Flip, isn't it? Wet, wet, wet. They had an absolutely cat shit nineteen ninety-one with a live LP that failed to chart, and two singles from their next LP, which got to number thirty-seven and fifty-six respectively. But the third cut, Good Night Girl, spent four weeks at number one in January of nineteen ninety-two. And the LP, High on the Happy Side, entered the album chart at number
3: one the following month. And that was the breakers, fuck you. Yeah. It when Tim Buckley sang, "Well, should I stand amidst the breakers? <laughs> should I lie with death my bride?" Yeah, <laughs> now, now I understand his dilemma. <laughs>
0: Okay, well there the break is, but this is already broken. It's our second debut
1: performance at number 24 this week, performing Loaded. Would you welcome to Top of the Pops, Primal Scream? Mayo on the balcony. Next to a girl in an insane bright bra top that's been wrapped around her forearms, which makes her look as if her breasts are wearing sunglasses. Tells us that those were the breakers, but this single has already broken. It's loaded by Primal Scream. Formed in Glasgow in 1982 by Bobby Gillespie and Jim Beater, two youths from the Kings Park Secondary School, Primal Scream began their career Mary Brennell Boy's murder style with bedroom tapes where Beatty played guitar and Gillespie banged on two dustbin lids. After trying out a few Birds and Velvet Underground covers, they moved on to writing their own Birds and Velvet Underground inspired songs, started gigging and were picked up in 1984 by another classmate, Alan McGee, who signed them to his London-based label Essential Records. Although sessions for a single were aborted and the deal fell through, Gillespie was immediately recruited as the drummer of the Jesus and Mary chain, keeping Primal Scream as a side project and turning it into a proper band, who were signed to McGee's new label, Creation, in 1985. Just before the release of their debut single, All Fall Down, Gillespie was given an ultimatum by the Reed Brothers to either join the Mary Chain full-time or resign, and he chose the latter. After myriad lineup changes, they finally made a dent on the UK chart in 1987, when Gentle Tuesday got to number 86 in July of that year, but were stuck in a retro rock rut for the rest of the decade. Destined to give good interview in the Inkies, but ultimately being slagged off in the reviews pages, and by the time their second LP, Primal Scream, came out in September of 1989 and failed to get anywhere near the LP chart they were teetering upon the rim of the dustbin of history. However... After being taken out to raves by McGee throughout 1989, the band were introduced to the fanzine writer and DJ Andrew Weatherall, who had just finished working with Paul Oakenfold on the club remix of Hallelujah by the Happy Mondays. In a last row of the dice, they gave him a copy of the LP track I'm losing more than I'll ever have with instructions to completely gut it. Keeping nothing but the horn section at the end of the track, he lauded it with a sample of Peter Fonda having a go at a preacher at a Nazi biker funeral in the 1966 film Wild Angels. The drum loop from an Italian bootleg mix of What I Am by Edie Brickell and New Bohemians. The horn blast from Freestyle, the 1975 library track by John Hawkins. And vocals from the 1976 emotions track I Don't Wanna Lose Your Love. And after Gillespie added a couple of lines nicked from Robert Johnson's Terraplane Blues, the single and the band instantly became non more 1990. After being rinsed in the clubs, it entered the charts of Fortnite to go at number 47, then soared 15 places to number 32. And this week, it's up another eight places to number 24. And here they are, finally at the promised land, at the top of the pop studio. Oh, well, well, well. Where to start with this, me dears? Well, I'd like to just read out a quote, if you don't mind. Mm. Go ahead. From seeing bands such as Suicide, The Pop Group and The Fall, I had developed a love for confrontational performance. The fuck you attitude that these bands possessed. Audiences are sometimes like cattle, grazing idly in the field, waiting to be herded to another field, shepherded all their lives, unthinking, unknowing. Artists have to be brave, as the old saying goes, pioneers take the arrows. (laughs) It's lonely out there on the perimeter, on the edge of consciousness, the dark, unknown regions of soul dread and psychic derangements where the straights are too scared to go. (laughs) The great herd gather around each other, take safety in numbers, and all move together in the same direction, safe in the knowledge that the farmer will feed them regularly. They know their place in the great or not so great scheme of things, while the lone wolves go hungry, always searching for the meagre, unwanted scraps the society has forgotten and seen no use in. But the lone wolves use this cultural garbage as soul food and through a kind of feral alchemy create powerful art to use Kipling's well-worn but true maxim. He who travels fastest travels alone. The spake Bobby
3: Gillespie in his recent autobiography, <laughs> Tenement Kid. <Okay. laughs> wow, well, imagine having that much talent. It must be a bit terrifying for him. <laughs> mm.
1: Let's start off with you, Taylor, because in that Q&A that we did fucking ages ago, one of the pop craze youngsters asked you who were the shake in his band of all time, and you immediately came back with, you can't get past the
3: omni-shake of primal scream. Yeah. <laughs> well, the poor man's candy flip. Uh, I mean, at least candy flip have that ingenue quality, which you might at least mistake for freshness or charm. Mm. No, I mean, this is clearly a better record than candy yes. flip's record. Yes. But it's even more contrived, more desperate, less free, Mm. and ultimately less like what it thinks it is. Yes. Because what kind of person could look at poor old Bobby Gillespie flailing and flouncing and, you know, knock kneed in his meaty (laughs) finery and (laughs) not? laugh it's yeah, no. just self-evidently hilarious that determined frown of his just utterly without humor mm. or self-awareness yeah. and furious with everyone who isn't i think probably the other bobby gillespie star of itv's keep it in the family would have been a sexier dancer
1: <laughs>
3: yeah i mean the dads who were outraged by the
1: desecration of strawberry fields are now just pissing themselves laughing and throwing the remains of their tea up in the air with glee because as my mum would say bobby gillespie he looks a bastard doesn't
2: he <laughs> <laughs> i've related before my very brief encounters with bobby gillespie uh, the briefest of which was when we both happened to be at the barbican seeing spiritualized mm. i was coming back from the loo and he almost laid me out by crashing through some double doors and almost into me really yeah he's he's a man with what i might describe as a threatening aura Mm. he's like a recently redundant witch's familiar
3: (laughs) (laughs) can i share my brief encounter with bobby gillespie before you go please do i want to see primal screaming about 1987 and after the gig he came out to mingle with the audience and... Uh, Commune with the sheep. Precisely, yeah, to off- offer us a little bit of guidance. Yes. <laughs> um, and he went around lifting up girls' skirts and peering underneath. Oh,
1: did he know?:
2: Yeah, no. knowing
3: that nobody was going to say anything to him.
2: Oh, no. Man. Okay, fuck that guy. I was feeling a little bit bad about, you know, just the, the terrible things I was thinking or going to say. And now I don't. So that's that's very freeing.
1: He's free what um, he wants to do, Sarah. Come on. <laughs> Look up girls skirts. <laughs> and that's what we're
2: going to do. Um, yes. He's deeply, deeply awkward for a rock star mm. and not in the David Byrne neurodivergent kind of way absolutely unselfconscious in some ways, or possibly the most self-conscious man who's ever lived. I can't quite figure it out. Mm. The thing about this, kind of brilliantly, is that it's not actually... A Primal Scream record it's an Andrew Weatherall record because obviously as you said they gave it to him and just said just fuck it up completely just make it good which is great which you have to say that's a that's a hell of a thing for I'm sure a lot of people are very yeah. precious about their remixes and it's it's credit to them for just going just make it sound not like us at
1: all make it sound like it could be a hit
2: <laughs> but it's being presented on Top of the Pops as a song by a rock band with their rock instrument yes. but they're just like the front it's like it's a rock band made up of samples of individual members of Primal Scream playing the instruments they play and some Mm. other stuff and loads and loads of space around all of that it's like it's rock band as sound palette which is much more drugs than candy flip
1: to my mind. It's about as authentic as when one of the Reynolds girls mimed playing a guitar to uh, heavy metal rock and roll music of the past <laughs> in I'd Rather Jack. It
2: does make Bobby Gillespie kind of the equivalent here of the bird from Black Box. Yes. In in definitely. his little in his little leathers doing his little knees together shimmy. But mm. it, uh, I kind of, I have to hand it to them in the sense that like, even more, obviously going on top of the pops and miming and then going away again must be a curiously unsatisfying experience for anyone. Gotcha. But like, this is kind of turning that on its head. Uh, he doesn't take the mic for a good two minutes. No. You know, like in um, my second gangster reference of this episode in, in Goodfellas, where they let. Um, is it Goodfellas or Casino? Anyway, it's the thing where like they have to let their wives talk shit about nothing for two minutes. And then the FBI, have to, who are listening in, mm. aren't allowed to listen for any longer than two minutes on any given calls. So they have to hang up. But as soon as right. they do, the guys take over. It's like, so are we going to go kill that guy? Yeah, we are. <laughs> <laughs> so he doesn't take the mic for two minutes and just kind of shimmies about and mm. then says about eleven words, two of which are either "woo" or "hey," yes. and then call it a night.
3: <laughs> yeah, Al, you you should have said on the at the start. He he drops in a few lines uh, lifted from Robert Johnson's Terraplane mm. Blues," and a few lines lifted from Peter Powell. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> So, yeah, like, so the music's going on, and then occasionally he just shouts, Woo, hey, come on. Oh, I think you should have ad libbed a few more of those, like, uh, comb your hair. Yes. Now, <laughs> ski. <laughs>
0: Spray.
3: <laughs> Macho, man. I think it could have improved this performance that, immeasurably.
2: There really should be a, a loaded Superman mash.
3: Yes.
1: <laughs> They've got this loping beat going on, as was the style in 1989 slash 1990, but it's fair to say that the performance is less soul to soul and more arse to mouth. <laughs> <laughs> they've got tiny tim on slide guitar someone in the Manchester uniform of a white long sleeve t-shirt with something hippie-ish on it and billy smart jeans on the keyboard uh there's someone who's turned up looking like an extra in the video for calling the kaftan on guitar and a couple of members are serving suggestion i mean for all i know those chaps could be you know some of the back end of the mission and i wouldn't have fucking noticed any difference but how is bobby omnishake deploying his feral alchemy to powerful art chubs I contend it's by looking like Justin Bennett out of Granger in a heroin Scrooge up advert. I mean, you do have to feel sorry for him and them waiting all their lives to go on Top of the Pops, and when they do, it's to pretend to play a song that it contributed about 5% to, but, yeah. you know, it allows Top of the Pops to put a dance record on, where people are standing there with actual instruments like they were real musicians, when, you know, what they should have been doing was sitting round Andy Weatherall, who's in a big gold throne in a in a nice white robe and cutting his toenails and feeding him grapes and just bowing to him for saving their career <laughs> he should be on this he should be on there just sitting there just waving to go i made this song isn't it meant
2: that would actually have been brilliant wouldn't it I, yes as a kind of situationist top of the pops moment just have andy weatherall with his lovely flowing beard mm. <laughs> just sit there and drink from a goblet
3: but you see this is why you've got what you described as the, the, the chap in the Manchester uniform, it's the bloke out of Ride. Is it's it? The lead, yes, it's the lead singer out of Ride. Um, I think this was a last hurrah for MU Rules, right? right? Because the band we see here are quite clearly not the musicians no. that we hear of the record. No. So somebody decided that, well, what is it? It's, it's synthesizers or something, yeah. isn't it? So you have to see somebody playing a synthesizer. So I think they were forced to draft in somebody to mime... synthesizer part and it turned out the only person they could get on the phone at short notice was their label mate this bloke out of ride really and it's kind of funny because it really spoils their big moment it's like because he's just wearing a t-shirt right and they're all dressed up like you know extras from black adder (laughs) and he's there in his baggy top from the 1990 top man raver collection you know and it's like it's like the theatrical costumier ran out of Elizabethan leatherwear. And it's like, no, you're just going to have to do it in your pants and vest, mate. It's like uh, like if one of the black and white minstrels had forgot to put his makeup on, Mm. it'd just ruin it, wouldn't it? Yeah. I mean, I think it's kind of cool, in a way, that they're barely on this record. Mm. And, in fact, the pattern of their music generally tends to be that the more primal scream there is on the record, the worse it is. (laughs) And the less primal scream, the better. Now, that's potentially a great thing, right? As is the fact that the most contrived band in musical history chose to call themselves Primal Scream. (laughs) I mean, these could all be positives, right? Because the key to Primal Scream is that they're fetishists to an almost creepy extent and not in the good way, you know. It's like they're cut off from their own individuality and they're incapable of really connecting with imperfect reality, mm. so they end up like this, just sort of locked away, grasping at precious objects and discarded clothes and memories and accessories in lieu of actually fucking anything themselves, musically speaking. Mm. You know, it's like things a, that
1: the everyday folk leave behind.
3: <laughs> well, it's like a a religious. And sexual act of worship and displacement, mm. you know. They really mean it, Yeah, but they don't mean anything. And this is why this is possibly their best record, because it sounds like what it is. It sounds like them twirling and posing in this huge, empty, echoing space mm. where their music should be. Yes. I kind of like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's
2: such a peculiar thing, isn't it? Even now, you just kind of go, what the, what the fuck? You know, like, I know at the time, like, it makes sense on its own terms, but I couldn't really put it together in my head. I was like, what am I supposed to make of this? Which is which mm. has to be a good thing, you know, and it's mm. just so funny that it's come from this imperfect vessel, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> um but also I mean Denise Johnson, who did a lot of like incredible vocal work on prime screen records and just didn't that that's the kind of uncomfortable side of this is that she really didn't get enough credit for her work on no. making pr- making primal scream sound good
1: we've been swerved somewhat in this episode of top of the pops haven't we chaps by strawberry fields forever because the real dominant influence over this era wasn't the Beatles at all it was the rolling stones because you know this single is feelings of pity and sorrow for the horned one
2: Oh well, yeah people picked up on that there was a club where Andy Weatherall first laid it and um said that everybody you know was doing the woo
1: woo bit over the top of it, so they obviously, yes.
2: maybe ironically, or maybe just in in great enthusiasm, but you know,
1: yeah. Apparently, sympathy for the devil was played out quite a lot in acid house clubs in the early days, simply because they didn't have enough records to pad a night out with. Yeah,
3: yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Also, round about this time, I bought Let It Bleed from Rob's records, and the first time I heard Monkey Man, I thought, fucking hell, this is so Manchester. Yeah, why don't you do a remix of that, Mick? Come on. (laughs) Anyway, fuck Primal Scream. Let's talk about the real artist in this, Andrew Weatherall.
2: Yeah, so there's this excellent book, Acid House, The True Story by Luke Bainbridge, which is like a sort of very entertaining oral history of of Acid House. Mm. Yeah, so Andrew Weatherall had plenty to say about a lot of things, including this. Yeah, it was Innes who said, I've got this great sample you can use, which was the Peter Fonda sample from Wild Angels. I'd love mm. to claim that was my idea, but it wasn't. It was Innes. I played it at a Primal Scream gig at Subterranea under the Westway, and the whole place went mental, all singing the woo-woo's that sympathy for the devil thing over the top. Yeah. I think Bobby was double pleased because all the Schumann Spectrum kids there loved it, and all the Fay indie kids were trying to get into the dressing room to ask, Bob, what's the fucking disco shit? So Bob yeah. was doubly pleased because in one sweep it had managed to please the cool kids and ditch all these Fay indie kids. What yeah. did surprise me was it was quite a slow record. It's about 95 BPM. I'm surprised it's that much. So mm. to get a reaction like that at peak time really surprised me. The tempo in London was maybe slower than elsewhere, but it wasn't that slow. Mm. I remember a review that one mm. certain northern DJ gave it when it came out. I can't remember who it was, but it was someone who worked at the Thunderdome or one of those proper full-on clubs. He sent back his reaction sheet and it just said, soft, southern, shandy drinking shite. (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, there was a mixed response to it at the time. Mm.
1: I've got to say this right now. I actually like this single. At least I don't hate it. Because at the time, it gave students something to lumber about to without getting on my tits, which was really important at the time. You know, when a DJ chose to put this on at a fucking student disco, he was also choosing not to play the Wonder Stuff or Birdland or any of that shit. So while it was on, I had a comfort
3: zone. I mean, I grew up listening to Primal Scream when they were a Birds revivalist band you know in 85 86 Mm. doing these endless sped up rewrites of she don't care about time the record which should have ended that kind of jangly pop because you're not going to improve on that ever um no but in fact they were quite good at it and if you listen to their old peel sessions and stuff like that they still sound all right i mean they sound better and more charming than the stone roses who massively ripped them off um well documented if you do a side by side comparison of made of stone and velocity girl by primal scream yeah, you know yeah uh but that version of primal scream were kind of likable they had a tambourine player in the band just a bloke right. who stood on stage with a tambourine that was all he did he played the tambourine mm. while wearing black leather gloves you can't complain about that sort of thing you know what i mean unless
1: you were a cow <laughs>
3: but what happened to them they ended up on alan mcgee's uh new label that he did uh elevation which was a subsidiary of a major trying to make it by putting out an album of these lovely songs with a big 1980s major label indie production oh dear uh, and like all those bands it killed them They make it sound shit but yeah so the 12 string guitarist left um the one who was mostly responsible for creating the sound. So yeah, they right. had to carry on for a bit as a sort of crappy barroom rock band until they tripped over weatherall and tumbled into a gold mine. Mm. But the thing is this is in a way this is the most interesting thing about them. They're a band with a a hole in the center. They've got no identifiable talented one to mm. hold it all together. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. They just find ways to get along like a three-legged cat. Yeah. And <laughs> Of course, Andrew Weatherall and Kevin Shields and all the different people they've worked with down the years are talented, and as a result, they've made music, or they've made at least bits of music that's not that bad. Mm. It just never quite feels right, Mm. because what pours out of Primal Scream is not a sense of gleeful mischief and delight at getting away with it, Mm. or a sort of graceful passivity as they are used as a vessel. Mm. Uh, But this kind of arrogance and entitlement, which is perfectly appropriate for the band that they're pretending to be, Mm. but in this reality can't help but feel a bit charmless and a little bit embarrassing. And I really get it because it's part of their holy aesthetic you know you have to commit right you there are no half measures you mustn't ever smile you mustn't act like anyone can reach you you know you have to believe that you are the rolling stones and all this is really happening yeah uh but (laughs) the thing that they've missed the one thing that they've missed in their extensive study of of rock and roll mythology is that even in rock and roll that sort of Arrogant shithead attitude only passes as cool when there's a spark of genuine credibility. Mm. You know, something to mark you out from all the other kids with tennis rackets in front of their mirrors. Yeah, you know, and without that, you just are going to look ridiculous. And I don't make the rules. I'm sorry. I think the most prominent thing about Primal Scream at the time was they were putting
1: themselves over as the biggest custard gannets in pop. There's an interview in Q a year later which reads as follows. Upstairs, Andrew Innes is strutting his dance floor stuff with his own mother. Gillespie is up there too, signing autographs for his skinny disciples and looking up girls' skirts. Nearly all of the Scream creation tribe end up punching the air beneath the mirror globes at some point during the next two hours of Andy Weatherall's DJing. But for the moment, all attention is keenly focused on what's happening downstairs. The entourage, Mill Bisley, rub their hands and grin gleefully. The reason? The drugs et erive. Tonight's menu includes glug, methadone, (laughs) (laughs) ecstasy, magic mushrooms, amphetamine sulfate, cocaine and the backstage staple of hash. The varied and various mood alterants are liberally distributed amongst the tour regulars, you know muses bobby it was a love of music that brought us all together and that's what we really get excited about but we also get excited when the drugs
3: turn up really excited nom 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 yeah they're always a bit like uh what's that are you smoking a joint there oh yeah i see you smoke hash guess what i do i take crack
1: they are the real old twats of drugs aren't they primal scream
2: like glug a fucking glug (laughs) I've never heard that before it's Mm. like yeah a wee bit of night nurse just to kick it
1: (laughs) I did experience an oh what wow moment during this song after hearing it for the first time in ages I always thought the women singing I'm gonna lose your love was them singing I'm gonna loosen up which was aided by seeing Bobby Omnishake clearly loosening up in those uh, leather trousers
3: (laughs) it's a weird one look my response to Primal Scream is always going to be weird and conflicted in some ways, because mm. I'm a music critic with a speciality in late 60s, early 70s, psychedelia and underground rock, and a sub yeah. in 80s indie music. So, on the one hand, that means I can see through these people like air. This song is your mastermind subject, isn't it, Taylor? But Yeah, but at the same time, there's a kind of deep, unshakable... Empathy, unshakable perhaps, not the choicest word. (laughs) Um, So it feels like I get this group at the deepest level. It's possible to get something this shallow, Mm. but I can't admire them um so you know the old cliches about music writers like the the first one being uh writing about music is like dancing about architecture which sounds clever for about 10 seconds until you think actually no hang on what it's a lot more like is writing about architecture Uh, and if you've got anything to say about ian nairn my friend you should step outside and say it to me there yeah fuck off zappa Yeah, yeah but the other one is that music journalists are failed musicians right which i wish was more true because then music journalism might be a little bit better informed and a bit more clued into musicians tricks and Mm. what is and isn't cheap and hackney you know uh but it's also meaningless partly because a lot of the best musicians were also failed musicians Mm. uh, and because success and failure as a musician isn't linked to insight or you know, understanding or writing ability or anything else you need Mm. as a critic or used to. Um, But the point is, you'd rather have a music critic who's a failed musician than a musician who's a failed music critic, either literally like Morrissey or spiritually like Primal Scream, because Mm. they know everything. They get everything. They feel everything right Mm. down to their tingling little souls. But ultimately... They don't really have anything to add. And I mean, look, I've always hated being a critic. And in a lot of ways, I n- wish I'd never fallen into this particular pothole. I mean, despite the perk of entry into the latter day Algonquin round table, that is the Chart Music <laughs> Collective. Um, partly because it's intrinsically frustrating and demeaning, but also because you need too many ideas. It's like being a comedian where you go on tv or radio and everything you say has to be a new idea and once Mm. you've said it bang it's gone you can't just say it again Mm. over and over for the rest of your life whereas if you're a musician or a painter or a film director or even a novelist you can get by for 20 or 30 years on one idea just Mm. retouching it and refining it and exploring it from different angles you know And at the lowest level, you don't even need that. You can Mm. get relatively rich and relatively famous and have a relatively large amount of fun without ever having to think of anything. And it's fine if you do that with charm and grace and a certain style, even a sort of snotty kind of style. But Mm. if you do it snootily with a deluded sense of your own seriousness and this much ironic self-regard, that's just hard to love, right? Mm. So as a responsible critic, I can't abide primal scream because every disparaging thing that can be fairly said about my old profession Mm. is far truer when applied to them, right? When applied to this group who live in a world of, refractions and reminders and whose relationship to the thing they love most is largely parasitical because all rock bands are derivative and in hock to some extent but the best of them inhabit their favourite music and they use it as a language with which to communicate something but Mm. the problem with Primal Scream is that we're kind of given nothing it's almost like just an instruction to worship you know Mm. it's like these lads are so touched and moved by music that maybe they can't accept that perhaps their place might be just to consume that music on their headphones while delivering uber eats (laughs) and and i admire the determination and the lengths they're prepared to go to in order to deny that destiny Mm. but alas it's not quite that simple
2: They're not very important in my musical life, but I'm kind of fond of them in the way that you would be of, of, you know, the sort of the the guy that sleeps in the doorway of your apartment building and kind of swears at you every day as you go (laughs) as you go to get your (laughs) pose.
3: But the problem is I can't hate them because we come Mm. from the same place in terms of musical revelation and what hooked us and in fact. So I sympathise with this this sort of deep love that sets in and how it can affect you. I remember in about 1986 or something, Bobby Gillespie wrote an article in the NME about late 60s psychedelic music, which today would probably make you wince or or yawn because it's the same old, psych manifesto mm. you know but at the time it was kind of beautiful to read someone rhapsodizing about all this music yeah. that i love like the birds you know 13th floor elevators sid barrett chocolate watch band uh love all this stuff that still lives in the deepest and most sensitive tunnels of my heart to the point where I'm still toying with the idea of forming a love tribute band called Like. (laughs) The single cleverest thought I've ever had in my entire miserable life. but care! Or the other response mechanisms in Facebook.
1: Oh,
2: yeah. Angry. Yes. Angry, yes. By the way, you should know that there has been a band called The Like, so there is a danger you'll have to share a Spotify page with them.
3: (laughs) Yeah, happy to piggyback. (laughs) But it's just that this particular kind of music, and I say this particular kind of music, not meaning the actual sounds that we're hearing mm. here, but the sounds that are in Primal Scream's head as this music is played behind them. Mm. It means something special to those of us who were young in the 80s. That's the thing. Yes. And who took the 60s as an escape from the 80s, musically and culturally, mm. right? An inversion of the 80s. But the danger is always that you're going to disappear into that past because like that love and that sensibility is not transferable into the 80s. Mm. There's no way to make a blend of now and then. Mm. So the glories of the past become an alternative reality, which you disappear into, Mm. you know. And every time you're forced to snap out of that and face a repulsive Tuesday morning, you cling on to that alternative reality a little bit tighter. Mm. And before you know it, you're cut off from everything other than your own internal dream reality. And it's fucking terrible. It's a terrible mistake trying to inhabit the invisible structure of this dead world you just become ghostly and even as primal scream are miraculously rescued from their self-imposed predicament Mm. right when andrew weatherall like a a giant charitable bird flies (laughs) overhead and takes the collar of their leather jackets in his beak and lifts them out of the rotting corpse pit of revivalism into the blue sky they're still twisting and writhing in their old time Mm. clothes you know in the empty air still in front of their bedroom mirror still trying to match each new experience to somebody else's old experience Mm. but the trouble is because of that shared formative experience I'm looking at this absurd scene of of failed necromancy Mm. and despite myself and despite my laughter i am feeling the intensity and the seriousness of that love and devotion to a particular tradition and aesthetic even though i kind of don't want to it's a bit like a religion mm. it's like being a lapsed catholic yeah you know what i mean i'm out here living my life but it's never completely let me go and i still get a feeling when i see the stations of the cross you know or rather a bunch of fellow victims dressed up and reenacting the stations of the cross
1: andrew otherall he did give them the keys of the kingdom and they used it to
3: make get your rocks off (laughs) yeah yeah they did yeah Mm. look can i tell you one more story quickly right years ago an old melody maker colleague got a job as a commissioning editor for a book company and started getting loads of us in for boozy expense account lunches and trying to think up projects and stuff and try and match writers to projects that were already in the works and one of the things that was coming up was the book that eventually became my magpie eyes are hungry for the prize right history of creation records by the late david kavanagh Mm. um but at this point it was still at the stage of meetings with alan mcgee and all that stuff and this bloke mentioned to me that he'd given mcgee a list of all the writers that were on the books and He'd gone down it, crossing people off and so on. And apparently when he got to my name, McGee said, he's an okay writer, but I don't think he really understands the label. And I Mm. still laugh every time I think of that because, of course, the real problem, the real reason I ended up not liking half the stuff that came out on Creation and was absolutely not the right person to write that book is that I understand the label far too well. Mm. I mean, I'd only have written nine chapters on Ghost of a Young Man by the Jasmine Minx and <laughs> half a paragraph on Teenage Fan Club, precisely as it should be. Mm. So I think they chose well in the end
1: so after this performance in spiral carpets were carrying their organ and whatnot out of television centre and saw Bobby Gillespie storm out of the dressing room run smack into a full length window thinking it was the exit and then getting on the tube and going back to his girlfriend presumably thinking to himself fucking hell I've waited all my life for this and all I did was play the bastard maracas (laughs) even so the following week Loaded jumped another 8 places to number 16 and stayed there for two weeks. I mean, this is the thing about the mythology of of this era. You know, all these massive hits by Stone Roses and Happy Mondays and Primal Scream. 16... For two weeks? That's fucking
3: shit, mate. Yeah, it entered the charts lower than Candy Flip.
1: Yes.
2: That doesn't necessarily mean anything, ultimately, though, does it? There's like, there's oh, it does
1: to the... chart music and the charts.
2: Oh, what, you big nerds. It's like there's loads of classic records that didn't make it to number one and stuff. Who gives a shit?
1: Yeah, there's loads of classic makers that still made it in the top ten. Yeah.
3: Yeah, if they were so good, why aren't they in the charts?
1: Yes. So it's just paying devil's advocate, then. <laughs> the follow-up come together, completed their transformation into the Shaking Stones, and they'd shake around for the rest of the 90s and beyond, scoring 10 more top 40 hits, three of which made the
3: top 10. Can we do one more quote from his book? Yes, I've been going through it, like, Gripped by the horrific realisation that in lots of ways, this is the book I'd have written when I was 15. (laughs) Um, There, but for the grace of God. I'm turning the pages thinking... Fucking hell, if I hadn't got myself together, I could have ended up as a wealthy and widely loved rock star. (laughs) Shudder. But look, of all the memorable moments in this book, so far, this is the one that's really stayed with me. It's an early Jesus and Mary Chain gig. Right. Uh, And if you remember, they used to have sort of so-called riots at early Jesus and Mary Chain gigs where people would start smashing everything up and fighting and all Mm. that. And people are throwing bottles at the band. And one of them hits Bobby Gillespie's girlfriend on the head, to which he responds with appropriate outrage. And his response is, I quote, I proceeded to pick up any bottle that had landed on the stage and started throwing them back at the audience. Fucking sheep. So afterwards, they go to A&E to get his girlfriend seen to. Mm. And Bobby remembers the scene. There were people who had attended the concert in the waiting room who started screaming abuse at us because they'd been bottled too. Joe Foster and I went over to them and told them all to fuck off, Mm. that they deserved it for being part of that audience of fools. (laughs) Now, if you pick apart that sequence of events and Bobby's reactions to his own actions and to the actions of others and their relative consequences... Not just on one furious night when he's pissed off that his girlfriend got bottled, but almost 40 years later in a book. Mm. All I'm saying is psychologists have a word for that. <laughs>
1: fucking hell Paul, crazy youngsters after that performance i'm afraid we're gonna to have to retreat to the chart music chill out room and untwist our melons if you will and come back hard tomorrow for the final part of chart music number 66 hey don't forget we've got a massive video playlist so if you want to dip your head into the bucket of 1990. Get your ass over to youtube.com slash chart music podcast. And never forget, if you want this episode in full, without adverts, days before it goes on general release, patreon.com slash chart music. So on behalf of Sarah B and Taylor Parks, this is our Needham. See you tomorrow. Stay pop crazed. <laughs>
3: Sharp music.
1: So, you've got an idea for a business. The store of your dreams. There's just one thing to figure out everything. That's why Shopify's all in one commerce platform makes it
2: easy to sell online, in person, and everywhere else. Sell on social media, source products with an app to get that first sale feeling. Woo-hoo. It's the only solution that gives you everything you need to sell everywhere you want. So when you're ready to bring your idea to life, power it up with Shopify.
0: Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash listen.